Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. 53106 is our text number that will cost you uh, 30 cents. You can follow us on Twitter or send us an email to afternoon at newstalk.com. It is time for parenting. Joanna Fortune uh, joins us uh, once again and I should warn people that the first couple of uh, the first couple of questions are, you know, it's kind of fairly harrowing stuff. Uh, anyway, afternoon, Joanna. Good afternoon. Yeah. Uh, right, here's the first one. Can you offer some advice to a desperate sister-in-law? Recently, my brother's wife took her own, took his own life, uh, her own life, sorry, uh, leaving behind her three and a half year old daughter whom she adored. They were inseparable and she was always so kind to her. We haven't told my niece that her mum is dead and we, as we honestly don't know how even to start that conversation, we're just saying she's away. She cries all the time for her mammy and is absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's absolutely heartbreaking. And for all of you, this is a terrible, tragic loss. And it's just incredibly difficult for everyone. And to find it's not like life events like this come with a a script that you can go, oh, I I know how to do this. It doesn't. Mm. And when we're in our own state of loss and grief and dealing and reeling from something like this, it's especially difficult to find the words to say it. And I'm really struck by the, the caring intent that would yeah. have come from mommy's away, you know, because my desire is to protect you from the awfulness of this. But really, I can't find the words to say it. But, you know, one of the first things I'm going to say is you have to tell her that mommy is dead and not coming back. She's three and a half. It's more the how we do this mm-hmm. than not doing it because children know when mommy or daddy are away, they call you. Yeah. They video call she you. They, call, they come already. back. Yeah. She knows. And just because they they don't understand the finality of death and th- what she will know immediately is that this extended waiting for a return that isn't happening is very stressful. The person who made her feel safe and cared for is suddenly gone and she cannot make meaning of this loss without knowing. And I don't say that lightly because I think my huge empathy for this is going to be so difficult and you will all need to pull together to have the same story in the same way. So she hears it from multiple people in a calm, clear, consistent way as much as possible. Bearing in mind she's three and a half and not understanding the permanence or finality of death, we adults have to be very clear in our language that it's not ambiguous language, that we avoid phrases or euphemisms like we've lost mommy or mommy went to sleep and didn't wake up. Language like that, because it actually, again, it comes from that place of, oh, this is so difficult. I'm just trying to make unbearable news bearable. But it creates confusion because children are quite concrete and literal. And what do you mean she's lost? We should go look for her is Mm. the natural response to that. So you do need to get to a place where you have words that are really hard at the moment, you know, dead, life has ended, not coming back. Open, honest, developmentally appropriate is always the rule of thumb with this. And right now, and you will know your family story, your family belief system and this little girl's development. It might be enough to say that mommy has died. Her life is over. She won't be coming back and to support her through that piece. She may not ask you any more than that. She may not need to hear any more than that at this point in time. And I think that's key here, Sean, that a conversation like this starts now. But you will be growing and developing that narrative as she grows and develops and is ready and open to hearing and understanding more. And again, 
I think to talk about something as sensitive as suicide is especially difficult with children, but it is also especially important that we do that in a considered way with children because they will hear this. Yes. This is not something that tends to stay secret or quiet and we do want to create openness around these difficult topics so that we can understand what happened there. So stay honest as it maintains the trust-based connection and it shows her that she can bring difficult questions to her safety network Mm. and that those difficult questions will be answered, maybe not in the moment. And you have to give yourselves permission to say, that's such a good question. That's such a big question. I need to think about it and come back to you with that. I think you can also introduce you know, well-known books. And again, there's always books, isn't there, on issues. But The Invisible String um, is a very, very well-known one. And it's it's a really nice way for children to understand that when we're not together in life anymore, we can still feel connected to those we've lost. Yeah. And it's a nice way of doing You know, it's nice for all of us. It's nice for the little one, but also for her dad and for her her extended family as well. This is a conversation that's going to need to happen And then she might look at you and go, oh, and then ask you and ask you and ask you. And that's the difficult piece because she's testing. Is the answer still the same? Is it still the same? So dealing with your own grief is really an investment in this little girl. So because first off, there's there's the death conversation, conversations. But at some point down the road, they all know there's going to be a suicide conversation as well. Yeah. And, you know, and I think, you know, this is something that is beyond the scope of what we might consider normal parenting conversations. This is not something you think you're going to have to deal with any of us. So it is absolutely appropriate to seek some professional support around that and to help you through it. I think specific and specialised grief counselling for the adults. Yeah. In the equation yeah. is is a starting point. And again, it's about self-care, but also it's an investment in how you're going to go through this with this little girl, what kind of language feels appropriate and comfortable for you to talk about something like that? And again, you're just going to have to use clear language. But again, you know, when we open the box on a very difficult topic, we can tie ourselves up in knots with details. Did I over explain it, under explain it? Where have I gone with this? It starts with what is our understanding of it? Mm. And the first time you have that conversation shouldn't be with this little girl. It should be with each other so that you hear yourself speaking it out loud and you hear where your voice catches and you hear... And it's okay to get upset having this conversation because this is upsetting. It gives her permission to be upset as well and that she can bring that to you and you can be sad together and find your way out of that. It's just going to take time. It's a terrible loss. Like it's really I also think, though, something once once she does know that mommy is not coming back, that she can have a a mommy memory board, a mommy memory box Mm -hmm. and that you really focus on photos and memories and stories and keeping the memory alive because that's going to be crucial now and going forward. But I I, and again, though, Sean, like it's easy for me to sit here and it's not actually easy. But to say that, I think when you're directly in this situation, it's happening to the adults in her life as well. Yes. So, you know, you might not be in a place where you can go there yet. So be honest with yourself saying, I get that, but I'm probably three, six months away from being able to have a memory board. That's okay. Yeah. That is okay. I I do think bringing in some specialist supports and, you know, being aware that, you know, um, 
Bernardo's website will have information about child bereavement supports. I think there's a, I think they're UK based, but a website, winstonswish.org, I've always found really helpful, particularly about the sensitive subject of suicide and discussing it with children. So there are lots of resources and information. Now, in lots of information, you can also get a bit lost. So it's about sifting through, oh, that doesn't sit with me. Okay, that's useful. I can take this piece. That's a starting point. And that's something to really reach out and mm-hmm. spend some time with. The, the 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 suicide issue though mm. I I know it's a, how long is a piece of string question but would you wait until she was in double figures to to discuss that I mean or, or? not really as soon as there's a question there needs to yeah. be some kind of an answer and if she says but how did she die mm. even now. You need to have an answer for that. And, you know, I'll always say don't lie to children, but you may say I don't have the words to speak that right now. And so you may say there was an accident or mommy's body got a hurt that she couldn't heal from. And again, you know, mommy's body got a hurt she couldn't heal from is something you can return to and reshape. And you're in the realm of open and honest there. And it might be a way that you can start that conversation. I mean, I could sit here and give you a a sort of semi-script of things you could say, but it's not going to be the same for every child. So I do think if there's any doubt, having even a professional consultation with someone who can hear, well, what lens are you coming at this from? What's the history here? What level of mental illness has this little girl been exposed to or aware of already in the family narrative or where are we going at with it? It's just terribly tragic and sad. I think it's about time, but really bringing this little one with you on that journey, not saying, well, she doesn't understand because we might think little children are too young to understand, but they feel the loss. They yeah. are aware of that immediately. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, they, they'll see the grief in everyone around them. Absolutely. Of course they will. Someone's texted in to say, I just want to reassure that family who have to tell uh, their child that her mother has passed away. My little girl lost her dad by suicide when she was two. Yeah. We explained it clearly in the way your expert is suggesting and she understood and could process it mm. and is doing well now at the age of seven. Explaining the details is ongoing and we give her more specific information as she gets older. That's really well handled. Yeah. Yeah. Difficult subject, really well handled. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, obviously, as John has said, Bernardo's website has a lot of information. Yeah. And anyone just, you know, it's Samaritans is a great resource as well. And Winstonswish.org, because they specialise in suicide um, impact on children. Yeah. The uh, Samaritans are on 116123, by the way. And uh, someone said the Children's Grief Project is an excellent resource. Yes, absolutely. Right. uh, Second question. Again, uh, this is a bit of a tough one, too. At the beginning of COVID, my then 14 year old daughter did not leave her bedroom. She only left her bedroom to go to the bathroom and eat her meals. And I think due to this, she put on weight as she did not leave the house because she didn't see the point in going outside for a walk. But around a year ago, she put herself on a strict vegan diet, completely moved away from all dairy products, oils, meats, etc. As a result, she lost a lot of weight and started to disengage with the family, like fighting with her older sister about access to the laptop 
which shattered their relationship. It never recovered. I took my daughter to a doctor following this dramatic weight loss where we were recommended a psychiatrist. However, my daughter keeps lying about her condition to everyone as in how it is affecting her. For example, she has barely had a period in the last year. Lately, I discovered she is bulimic and the doctor asked, had I noticed scars on her arm? The psychiatrist made us cancel my daughter's sports because she's afraid that she will collapse on the field, which my daughter is really upset about as she loves her sport. I'm devastated. Could you help me, please? Especially in what to say to her, as I don't know what to do. I know I'm not supposed to say you look really thin. So instead, I've said you look unhealthy. But then she said, what do you mean? And I couldn't explain what I meant. How do I articulate what unhealthy underweight is? Everything I say, I'm afraid she will take as a compliment or upset her. Oh, my gosh. I think this is, you know, because eating disorders are obviously really, really complex. Um, It's very, very difficult to understand, you know, the thinking and therefore, you know, the causes behind Mm. it. It's it's extremely complex. But what this letter, I think, really brings up for me, John, is that the eating disorder that an individual in a family is struggling with, living with and living through isn't limited to that individual. The eating disorder affects everybody and every relationship in the family dynamic as well. And I always think about, you know, how eating disorders impact parents and siblings as well, because the sister is mentioned here. But it's rarely discussed, you know, how the parent child relationship um, really changes under this, because as a parent, you have to watch, you know, your loved, adored child deliberately hurt themselves with food restriction or purging or binging or whatever is going on. And you can see your child's clearly suffering, but you are powerless to help them because it's not like you can come in and go, just eat. Mm, Just stop what you're doing and do it differently, much as you'd want to. And the eating disorder in that way, not your daughter, but the eating disorder disempowers you as a parent. And it can result in this kind of pervasive helplessness in the relationship where you're grappling with, you know, how am I going to fix this? Um, While all attempts to nurture and soothe and regulate are just rejected. And that in itself over a prolonged period of time, and this is a prolonged period of time, this is more than a year. And to be fair, it was coming for a year before that with some of the behaviours leading up to it, can force us in as parents to this kind of executive care level, you know, where our bid to emotionally connect is constantly rejected. You know, we're trying and trying nothing, seems to work. So we stop trying to emotionally connect. And then our parenting becomes very much about the body, food, just yes. eat. Yeah, yeah. And it's not yeah. about that emotional connection anymore. And if that's not a judgment because that's self-protection, mm. you know, and that's that happens. It's unavoidable. I think as a parent, you know, body wise um, and have a parent peer support group and program that is well worth linking out to. You will not negotiate this on your own. Yeah. As it, like it, and it can be such a lonely place. I think eating disorders are a very lonely experience, even though we know that numbers are sky high at the moment and there are lots of young people, families affected by this. It can feel very lonely in the moment. So in lots of ways, what I'm saying to you is you have to focus now because you've done the right thing. You went to the doctor. You were referred to a psychiatrist. She is being treated by a psychiatrist. Now, a psychiatrist may not be seeing her weekly and it may not be psychotherapeutic. It may be very Mm. much more about the disorder. So it might be worth looking at options and avenues in consultation with her psychiatrist who knows where she's at with this disorder about referring her to something that might be more psychodynamic that can help her work through the other variables that might be underpinning and driving 
the overt mm. behaviour of the eating disorder because I'm just struck, Sean, that, you know, initially she retreated into her bedroom, rarely leaving her bedroom. You know, the bathroom. Something was and going on there, Something yeah. was, like this began in that I wasn't yeah. even coming downstairs. I wasn't connected to friends. I was disengaged from the outside world. Then I went on what, you know, it is a, a form of food restriction. Anytime we decide I'm going to be this or that, I'm yeah. not saying eating, uh, vegans are all eating disordered by any stretch of the imagination, by the way, because lots of vegans have very healthy body weights and, mm. and life. But it is almost a way of beginning an eating disordered pattern that's legitimate. I'm vegan. Yeah, you yeah, know, and yeah. then I take within the vegan diet, I further restrict and further restrict. And it's not about veganism. It's about restriction. Yeah. And it very quickly becomes like that. So I think if you can try to focus on maintaining the emotional connection with your daughter and who she is behind the eating disorder so that she gets seen and felt that it's her, not the disorder. So instead of saying you look unhealthy, that you actually respond to her saying, you know, any plans for the day? What are you up to? Wait till I share some news with you that you bid to connect about the now moments. Oh, I was listening to something on the radio, not about eating disorders, by the way, <laughs> something else. And, you know, I was told or I read this piece or, you know, I was just thinking about a time when would you like to do something together that you're actually talking about things that are not her body? OK, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I just think, you know, I, I really feel for parents in this situation, Sean, because I think as soon as you become a parent and you have an infant in your arms, you're cautioned and validated based on what your child and judged based on how your child eats. Yeah. Yes, you know, we always absolutely. are, you know, are they a good yeah. eater or a bad eater? Oh, a picky eater. Yeah. Oh, what are you well, doing about that? They latch onto and the breast. Is made, you it's know, yeah. loaded from the beginning. And of course, the feeding relationship is our first nurture connection with our children as well. So it is loaded and it's very hard to feel like I cannot nurture, soothe my child. You know, so really, I just want this parent to reach out to somebody like BodyWise, get some parent peer support. They have very good programs for parents about managing all of the dynamics we're talking about around this. And I just hope that helps. Yeah. Now, uh, BodyWise is spelled B-O-D-Y-W-H-Y-S. Their uh, helpline is uh, 0120107906. The scars on the arm? Yeah, that's kind of, ca- it's mentioned here, but not, mm. I'm, I'm assuming the psychiatrist saw scars yeah. on her arm. And then we would be looking at the, the layers of self-injurious behaviour and food restriction is also a form of self-injurious behaviour because you're damaging yourself and your body in doing that. But the fact that she is attending a psychiatrist, Sean, it, that that is being caught and dealt with. But it may be that the psychiatrist and yourself could talk about bringing in another layer of mental health support mm. through that. Again, BodyWise will have support groups uh, for young people. I don't know. I don't want to make any comment about waiting lists or anything like that because I don't know. Yeah. But if it's an option that the psychiatrist may work collaboratively with a psychotherapist as well, that they will decide with you when is the right time for this. But this is often a multidisciplinary approach because there are layers and many variables that contribute to eating disordered behaviour. So a multi-layered response is often called for. Yeah, she and the, well, I suppose it's probably not untypical that the, the the person can be a bit slippery about it and... Oh my gosh, and absolutely. Not accept as a 
And that's often as well what gets into the relationship. It feels like you're lying, you're devious, you're manipulating. All of this negative language can seep in because the eating disorder is so consuming of the person and it just intrudes on the relationship. And it's often the place we see that the rupture occurs then is the relationship and the person with the eating disorder just feels further isolated within the family group. And you have to keep those lines of communication and connection as open as you can, but you won't do that without support for yourself. Yeah. Best of luck uh, with that. Hope you get some help. Uh, you are listening to The Moncrief Show on Newstalk. Uh, coming up after that, my partner is an introverted parent. Moncrief on Newstalk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. 53106 is our text number that will cost you uh, 30 cent. Uh, Joanna Fortune is still with us for our parenting uh, slot. Uh, a few comments on some of the um, uh, issue, well, a couple of the issues that we've been uh, that Joanna's been talking about. The first one was uh, the 14 year old who uh, has uh, a fairly profound eating disorder, uh, as it seems at the moment. Uh, uh, one text says, try and connect with the person, not the thinnest mm. eating. Just as Joanna was saying, mm. be honest that you know she's struggling and that you love her and try not to act out of worry, but out of acceptance of where she is before you start on the healing journey. Uh, and that's from a mum who did a lot of the wrong things, but learned it's not about the symptoms. No. Okay, good. To know, mm. uh, yeah. Uh, and on the uh, issue of uh, the three and a half year old, Uh, Very sadly, her mother died by suicide. She hasn't been told yet. I'm so sorry for the Bree family. My daughter died uh, when my older daughter was three and a half. That conversation about her death is ongoing as she gets older. She's nearly seven now and we answer her questions regularly. And uh, Maura says uh, there's a website called childhoodbereavement.ie, which is also a a good resource. Now, next question is this. Our 10-year-old son sometimes thinks his mum is angry or annoyed with him when she's just being quiet. She's an introvert and a fantastic parent who our son adores and has great fun with. How do we let him know that silence is not disapproval as he is quite nervous of being bold or doing the wrong thing because he can't always read the situation? Isn't that so interesting? And, you know, we often talk about introverted children, but rarely about introverted parents. You know, when someone writes in and says, you know, their child is shy and what to do. And I always say it's not a psycho. We don't psychopathologize introversion or shyness. It's not. And it's the same here. And but I think what we see is children. Again, you'll always hear me say this. They take their social, emotional, behavioral cues from us their parents. So they scan us to get a read on what's going on? How are things? How are you experiencing me? And of course, they deeply personalise stuff. So if they see a parent in their perception shut down or withdraw, they're going, oh, I did something. Mm. I did something to elicit that. And if I do something else, I can elicit another behaviour from you. So at 10 years old, I would sit and talk with him about, you know, how everyone is different and unique and we each feel the world in different ways, that some people are outgoing and love chatting and being active all the time. And some people can do a bit of that and then they really need quiet time just to feel a bit better and to recharge their batteries. So some people power up and some people power down. Both are fine. Mm. And saying, you know, your mom needs waves of quiet and silence to help her work in the world. And that's the type of person that she is. And she can be obviously part of this conversation, of course. Um, But it doesn't mean I'm angry with you or it doesn't mean I'm sad. It just means that my brain is smart enough to know when I need silence for a while. Yeah. And you actually just explain it. You you will be amazed at 10 years old that you may get a, 
oh, okay, that makes so much sense. You know, that we have to give them credit that mum could also say to to this little guy, you know, I'm going to let's have a signal so that when I'm entering into a time when I really need just a bit of quiet time, I'll give you a signal and it might be a wink. It might be a little smile. It might be a double wink. You have a special thing. And he's like, okay. This is the quiet time. So he knows it's not about him. It's about you. Yeah. So that he can read that because children also won't automatically know when they come in with these great ideas. Hey, do you want to do this? And do you want to do that? And let's go here and let's go there. And I want to show you this. And le-. and you're like, whoa, no, no, I'm not there at all. You know, <laughs> Okay, I'm really overwhelmed. And so you can get this mismatch inadvertently. But if you cue him, do you know, I really want to talk to you about all that exciting stuff, but not right now. Yeah, yeah. And that's really what you're talking about. So play at home with feeling faces, a range of expressions, you know, going back to that body map of feelings that we all are made up of a range of feelings inside of us, that we're not all the happy person all the time or the angry person or the sad person. But we are people who have lots of feelings and how we manage our feelings is different for each of us. Some of us love to keep talking through it. Mm. Some of us really need not to do that. Yeah. So I think this is a really good opportunity to open that communication about understanding we're all made differently. And I think you'll find it'll make a lot of sense for him. Mm. Now, going back to the 14 year old with the um, eating disorder, uh, it was mentioned in the email about uh, scars in the arm. Mm. Somebody's texting it to say, I wonder if the psychiatrist meant scars on the knuckles rather than the arms. That's a very common sign of bulimia. Absolutely, it would be because you'd have scratches and marks from the, ah, the action of right. bulimia around that. So if it was hands or knuckles or fingers, um, damage to the skin around cuticles, things like that, absolutely it would be linked. Yeah. I want to find out the best approach for dealing with my disrespectful 16-year-old son. My son is very disrespectful to myself and my husband 70% of the time. He gets into cha- into challenging us for the smallest of things. And if he's asked to do something that he doesn't feel like doing now or later, he gets into a complete tailspin and begins to challenge what's being asked, even if he can only take the Delph or fizzy drink cans out of his room. He will only empty one half of the dishwasher, insisting that his brother, who's a year younger, empties the other half. His brother gives us no trouble at all and is never rude or insolent. He has endless energy to shout and rant at us when he pleases. This often occurs when he's being disturbed from his phone, which he likes to spend a lot of time on. My husband is helpful with many aspects of rearing children. Well, when it comes to this child, our eldest, I feel very unsupported. The problem is that he is as shocked as I am every time it happens and can hear what's going on between us, but doesn't step in unless I ask him to when I'm being roared and sworn at. I've asked him why he stays silent when he hears an exchange between us. And he reminds me that there's nothing that he can do, only take away his privileges. To tell you the truth, I'm embarrassed of my life being treated like this and find that taking away his privileges only solves the problem for a short period until he decompresses. Then after my son has again reluctantly apologised, we begin the cycle of him slowly building to a crescendo of anger. He's sarcastic and nasty and often causes a rift where I don't know what to do and blame my husband for not helping enough. His brother, 15, and his little sister, 12, stay quiet because he changes the whole atmosphere in the house very quickly. I resent his behaviour hugely as I feel this is a power play and that he often manipulates the whole house just to suit himself. His teachers and any others who encounter him find him to be a lovely chap. Please, Joanna, what will I do? It's making me hate him. Oh, my gosh. OK. I mean, it's just building to that last line, isn't it? Yeah. Through the whole letter. You know, and 
first and foremost, there's a couple of things here. You know, you and your husband are co-parents here. One of you is not holding the emotional load, though it is reading like this is particularly yeah. charged between the mom and son in this in this scenario. And it, it that isn't going to work because actually it just shows kids they can split between us and one of us gets all of it the rage and the other doesn't. So you are going to need that. The other bit that jumped out, a few bits that jumped out at me before I kind of talk about what is often unpleasant, but actually developmentally normal in adolescence is when this parent says, you know, that there's a whole lot going on when I'm being roared and sworn at. Yeah. Now, obviously, nobody should be putting up with that in their house. That's not acceptable behaviour in terms of what is and isn't OK at home. But I'm curious because there's nothing in here. What does this parent do in those moments? What do you say back? Like, how are you responding in the moment of being roared at and sworn at? You know, what are your responses? Because I do think and we've spoken here about kind of structure around acknowledge his feeling. Hey, I look, I know you're really angry or whatever it is that I've asked you to clear your room or empty the dishwasher or whatever or come off your phone. I know you're angry. It is not okay to speak to me that way. Communicate Mm -hmm. your limit and say, it feels like we need time to cool down from this. I'm going to walk away and come back to you later to discuss it. So you're targeting alternative outlets with that as well, because the piece then down that this boy seems to have it decompress for a short period. He reluctantly apologises and then the cycle begins again. That's really that rupture repair cycle. And the bit again that I'm just hearing a lot about what this boy is doing and not a lot about what parents are doing or saying in response in the moment, I mean, not afterwards, is that when we have a rupture with our kids, particularly all our kids, but particularly teenagers, because it'll happen in such overt ways that we'll end up shouting at each other very likely. And then everyone retreats to their corner and simmers. And there's this point of, well, whose job is it to say sorry? It is always the responsibility of the parent to initiate repair, regardless of who did what, said what, started what. Because the most important thing, especially with our teenagers, is we show them, not just tell them, but show them our relationship matters more than me being right. Our relationship matters more than the row. And it may be that you go, look, that situation got way out of hand. I really wish it hadn't. This is what I wish had happened. Here's what I wish I had done and said. Can I try it now with you in that calmer place? And if he says, no, get out, that's okay. You say, I am available to you to talk about this, but we won't be yelling at each other because I am not here to be yelled at. Mm -hmm. And you hold that boundary. There's a piece here, Sean, that I just think... You know, watch how the tension the son is projecting is playing out in the marital relationship. You know, that it's a lot of power for him. You know, the other siblings are holding back, afraid to do anything or rock the boat because he's holding all of that power. They're all scared of him. Absolutely. But that's too much power for one person to hold in a family because this kid is capable of another way of behaving because he's doing it in school. He's yeah. behaving very differently in school. And I don't know, is the effort to contain himself in school then exploding out at home? Mm-hmm. Because it's safe to attack the people who are always there for you, isn't it? You know, you're secure with them. They love you anyway and they keep forgiving you. Except this parent is reaching a point of burnout going, I don't know how much more of this I can take. I do wonder how you connect and enjoy, connect with and enjoy each other. There's nothing of fun in here. Yeah. There's no yeah. laughs. There's no... You know, when he's not like this, because there is 30 percent of the time un- unaccounted for here. Like, what is he like for the 30 percent when he's not like this? And how can you build and support that? Um, the connection has gotten consumed by tension and it's now how they're connecting and relating. They're relating through the rouse. 
more than they're not. Yeah. And that's almost becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy because hurts and rows will always happen in the parenting relationship. We need to expect it. Um, But our children are of us. There's no better way to discover our own unresolved teenage experience than to parent a teenager (laughs) Um, and go and going back and knowing what was that like for you? How were you responded to in your adolescence? How did that affect you? How do you wish it had been? And can you use how you wish it had been as a starting point? This parent might benefit, parents, by the way, both of you might benefit from some parental psychoeducation with a a adolescent psychotherapist who can talk you through those stages of adolescence, the five developmental adjustments, what we need to expect. And again, explaining doesn't mean excusing, but Mm. sometimes having that insight can go, oh, okay. So it's deeply unpleasant, but it is developmentally normal. And what needs to grow up now is my parenting in line with where he's at so that my responses are attuned to what he needs so that we can safeguard the connection. Is it? I mean, it's developmentally normal. All teenagers rebel against their mm. parents and they can be stroppy. But the, the, the level oh, no, of this level seems of to this. imply a yeah. massive amount of anger. Could there be something else going oh, on here with absolutely. this Absolutely. I mean, curiosity over certainty here for sure. I mean, it's normal to get into conflict, parents and teens. Very normal. Not pleasant, by the way. But, mm. you know, that whole I'll do half the dishwasher and he has to... That is not the issue here because that's actually what teenagers do. Yeah. You know, in the, in the balance of a pronounced sense of justice and fairness as they see it. Um, but, you know, that's not the issue. If you were only saying that, I'd say that's very typical. This is over and above mm. what is typical. We don't know why or how. And is it because what started as unpleasant but normal in terms of how it was responded to and engaged with? And I'm asking the question, not making a statement. Yeah. Has that amplified the situation that he's not getting this reflected back to him in a way of, hey, I got you. I love you. I don't love how you're behaving, but I love you. Our love is constant because actually it's very hard to keep loving someone who verbally abuses you. Yeah. Let's be honest about yeah. it. Yeah. So boundaries, limits. But I do think some. I would start the therapeutic piece with parents first before it's not like bring him to therapy. I think go talk to somebody yourself, do the parental psychoeducation, the therapeutic parenting piece, and then look at is there a way that your son may be having a struggle that you're not fully aware of the details. Maybe everything isn't okay in school or outside life. And this is how he's playing it out. But I do think that the, the main goal here is try to get to a place of emotional connection over always looking at behavioral correction. Thanks a million, Joanna. As Thank ever, you. Uh, you are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. We do have to take a break. After that, what reality television says about us. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.